0: All right, good morning again, and uh, good to be with you. Maybe you've noticed that we've had some upgrades in the screen department, actually in the computer department back there. And uh, you know what they say, one step forward, several steps back, like the, the streaming didn't work. But it will work again one day, and this has gotten better. So praise God. Um, if, uh, again, if you're visiting, glad that you're here, glad that you made it out, whether you've been following Jesus for a while or you're exploring faith, uh, we, as a church, what we do is we just take a book of the Bible and we teach straight through it. And right now we're in the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon in chapter seven. Uh, next week is our last week in this series, and uh, I hope it's been helpful. For, for those of you who have been here and have been listening along and with us, I hope that this has been helpful. I've heard good feedback. Uh, I know we have a number of people in the church who are like, uh, new, kind of about to get married. We have some people who are getting closer to, like, a decision point. Are we going to get married? And uh, we've got lots of young couples in here. Like six of you have been married for a very long time because uh, we don't have tons of uh, o- older couples in our church. But we're very glad for the ones that we do. Um, there's, there's so much wisdom in this book for uh, for for marriage, for love, for romance, and through that, wisdom for our relationship with Jesus as well, because the church is the bride of Christ and we are the church. Uh, Last week, if you were here, one of the big themes that we picked up on was endurance in marriage. Lasting for the long haul in marriage, and how over time your, your feelings change in the marriage from that initial uh, excitement and infatuation to something else. And just because those feelings change, doesn't mean that you're falling out of love. But it actually grows into something uh, much better and and deeper and more profound. And this week continues on that. And so we're going to get into it. The end of chapter 7 and into chapter 8 shows us what that looks like as that changes. And so verse 11, chapter 7, starts with this. uh, Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O oh my beloved. Uh, we've, we've mentioned earlier in the series that the Song of Songs, it fits into the genre and scripture of wisdom literature. Wisdom literature being uh, Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and it's, it's poetry. Um, Poetry is full of metaphor, right? The, the point of poetry is not to relate events like like you would find in historical narrative. Um, it's It's more about evoking certain emotions and feelings because of the images that it presents to us. And what we've seen throughout the song is, I mean, this is a pretty familiar passage. We've seen like four or five that are pretty similar to this going out into nature, seeing if the things are blossoming and blooming, and like... Like, we get it, right? We Throughout the, the song, we, we notice that vineyards and gardens and nature, those are uh, images used to represent their, their relationship, sometimes a specific aspect of their relationship. Um, but what you might feel uh, the inclination to do when you come to this at, ch- you know, chapter seven, the end of chapter seven, there's only eight chapters in the book, is you go, we've seen this, I know it, I understand what it means, let's move on. But there's a reason that it's in here. And poetry doesn't just use uh, you know, metaphor and imagery, it also will sometimes employ repetition to try and get its point across. Uh, sometimes repetition just is used for emphasis, uh, but in the song, and specifically here, because the song is covering such a wide range of time in their relationship, uh, and it's showing this to us again at a much later point in their relationship, Um, one of the the reasons this is being repeated is to show that the quality of their relationship is not breaking down over time. Like the same uh, love they had for each other and beautiful expression of that that we saw the whole way, it's still present here further along after all these years. And you look at the little detail, like it's the same basically, until we get to verse 13, and then we see something new. Like, they're doing the same stuff. It's the same image. But then she says, Beside our door are all these choice fruits, new as well as old. Fruit is like a favorite metaphor used throughout the Bible. Jesus uses it. You'll know them by their fruit. Paul uses it, the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit is the result. Like, it's the thing that's being produced because of all the work that's going into it. Uh, when you start growing something, when you plant something, and we're in March now, so for any of you who like gardening, growing things, like we're, we're getting pretty close. It's awesome weather out today. It's making you feel like I, I need to get started. Um, I garden, I like to grow things, and, uh, and one of the things I want to do this year is start most of my stuff from seed, because I have like a little grow light in one of those heat pads in my basement, so I can like start them from seed. And so like, just imagine that you're going through all this work. You, you plant your seeds down in like your cold basement, and because like your little timer thing is broken, you have to go down and switch the light on and off every single day, because it's not good to leave it on for too long, and it's also not good that they don't get any light at all. And then uh, you have to make sure that they're, they're watered, like the proper amount, not overwatered. So you're doing all that, and then they start sprouting. And then they sprout, and you put them in larger pots. And you start moving them outside. But you can't just throw them outside. Uh, they're not ready for that. You have to do what's called hardening them off. So you take them out for a little bit, and then you bring them in. Or you have like a little greenhouse thing. Um, it's a lot of work. Uh, And then, like you, if you're like me, you don't have a fence because you just bought your house last year, and there's a lot of things you haven't done yet, and so you have to go to Home Depot, and you have to buy the stuff, and you have to dig holes in this ungodly clay soil filled with boulders, and then you put the posts in, and you get your fence, and your plants have grown, and it's warm now, and the last frost is gone, so you put them in the ground. You put them in the ground, they start growing up, and you've like, done stuff to the soil, you've done compost, you put some mulch on top, you make sure that you're watering them, you're pruning them. If they need a trellis, you like, get the trellis there and help them grow up the trellis. Sometimes you tie them to it, and you're doing all this work, and it finally gets to the point that you're supposed to see the fruit, and you've done all that, and your plant gives you no fruit. What do you feel in that moment? This is not a situation where you go, well, it happens. I just love the process. <laughs> you know, I just love all those things that I did, and I, I didn't really care about the fruit in any ways. Um, no, no, you do it for all the fruit. You do it for the results, to see like the fruit of all your labor. That's the expression. Um, if my garden doesn't give me anything this year, I'm going to set fire to it, which... <laughs> Is the same thing that Jesus says he's going to do. He teaches a parable and he says the same exact thing, and we are his garden. And so, like, make sure there's fruit, all right, in your life. But in the song, all the work that is going into their marriage, into their relationship, that's the work of cultivation that's producing the fruit right? Uh, and, and, and the work itself, the process itself, is not the easiest thing. It's not the most fun thing. You have to be humble. You have to pay attention. You have to be patient. You have to give, give grace. You have to be able to pri- prioritize uh, your, your spouse's happiness. That's more important to me than, than my own. I'm going to self-sacrifice in this relationship. You have to be able to forgive. All that work, all that is cultivating, And you know what happens to a garden that never gets cultivated? Like You just set it up and you leave it alone. You don't put any work into it. It's going to be overgrown with weeds. The pests are going to get to it. It's not going to be watered. It's going to dry up. It's going to die. The same thing happens to a marriage that you're not putting the work into to cultivate. But if you do, if you're putting that work in, it's producing this fruit. If you keep with it, You're building trust together. Gives you peace. Gives you joy. Connects you with the purpose that God's given to you. You get to form great memories. You get to build your life together, you get to grow together as as human beings, and you get to look back and say, look at all the amazing things that have come out of our marriage and this relationship. All the amazing ways that I've grown, the amazing ways that you've grown, the things that have come out of our life. You get to, to to look at all those things and enjoy them. And look what she says. All choice fruits, the new as well as the old. There's always new fruit that's being produced because you always have to cultivate. You never get to a point where you go, we did it, we arrived, I don't have to do anything anymore. Right? You continue doing the work, but it continues producing the fruit. I was just talking to a, a couple right over there. They just became grandparents. Like, that's amazing, that's a blessing. That's the new fruit in their lives. It's coming out of their, their marriage, the, the lives that they've built together and how it's spreading and producing good things. So they're at a point now in their relationship where they've, they've, they've put the work in and they have some years to it. They have some years to their, their marriage and she's kind of looking back over all of it, the new fruit as well as the old and then in the start of chapter eight, she starts to look more at the old and so, uh, so here we go, chapter eight, verse one. This is from way back, even before they, they got married and she says this, oh, that you were a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breasts, if I found you outside, I would kiss you and none would despise me. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved, under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. She's looking back over her, her life and reflecting on their marriage and, and uh, the old fruit from the, uh, the very beginning of their relationship. Um, this part feels a little strange to us, and let's just get that out of the way. For, like, obvious reasons, um, I don't like to tease like specific places all the time, but like you read this and you get a little bit of like Sweet Home Alabama vibes, you know? Where, yeah, right? This, because this is about marriage. She's talking about her husband and she goes, I wish you were my brother, you know? I would bring you back to mom's house and it would be great. Um, it's not what you think. Uh, unless you think the thing I'm about to say, in which case it is what you think. Um, The the reason this seems weird to us is because there's vast cultural difference between us, where we are today, and life under King Solomon in Israel 3,000 years ago when this was written. Uh, In our culture, it's totally normal to see two people who are opposite genders and not married and not family be affectionate with each other right? Holding hands, kissing, like that's not a scandal. That's just life, right? Um, it's, no one thinks twice about it, except for like when, like have you ever been at a diner and like there's these two teenagers who are sitting on the same side of the booth and they're just like going crazy at each other and like everyone's super uncomfortable. No one likes it. No one wants to be around it, but they just have like no awareness of what's around them. That's over the line! Like That is something where we go, like, don't do that, please. Um, For them, the line is much, much before that, right? In in their culture, in the time of Solomon, if two unmarried people, opposite genders, not family, if they kissed on the cheek, that would be a scandal. Uh, The type of scandal where you go, hey, everyone, grab your rocks, We need to throw them at these floozies and teach them how to behave, right? That kind of scandal. Um, Men, in their culture, uh, men could kiss each other on the cheek. It's fine. Women together, that would be fine. Um, And family would be fine. Like, if you were brother and sister, that wouldn't be a scandal. I remember hearing a pastor talk about a time, like, after service, uh, a woman came up to him, uh, talking after service, kissed him on the cheek, gave him a hug, and then, like, left. And someone else saw this and was, like, horrified. So she went to confront him, and he goes, well, that was my sister. And, like, then it's not a scandal anymore. Then it's fine. That's what this is she's saying there's a point in time before our marriage where she had this really strong desire to be physically affectionate with him but she couldn't she had to wait and she did wait and she's glad that she's waited because she she mentions giving this warning i want you to do the same as i have waiting is like one of the first steps of cultivating in a marriage like before it even starts this is like preparing the soil like, this is, this is one of the first things that you do um, to not just, like, act on impulse and give in, but to take your time. She says in verse four, I adjure you, daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Wait until the right time. It's so much better that way. It's so much safer that way. And now she can be with him. Anytime she wants. She says, he, he's embracing me. Now. now we're married. Now it's not a scandal anymore. Now we can just uh, be together. I remember when I got married, this was like one of the best kind of instant changes to your life when you get married is that at the end of the day, you don't have to go home. You just get to be together. You don't have to waste all that time driving around. You just, you're, you're just where you are. You're with them. You stay together. You don't have to go anywhere. And part of the reason that made that feel so special for me about marriage is because we did wait. And so it actually became like one of the distinct differences in life from, from married to unmarried that I could start enjoying. Uh, but, but why is it so important? Like, why is she so emphatic with this warning? Like, what's at stake if you don't wait? Because you know, and people will say this, you know that you love each other, you know that you want to get married, like you know these things, you care about each other, so why not? What's at stake is what we find in these next two verses that we're going to read, and also in those next two verses, w- we get to see what is uh, what, what love has the potential to grow into over time, remaining committed and putting in the work. Um, it grows into this, this deep and profound thing, uh, but it's also what's at stake if, if you rush and you're unwise about it. So look at this, verse six. She says, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death, jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. These are like the most powerful, well-known verses in the Song of Songs, and for good reason. They're expressing just the, the unmitigated power and strength that love has. Like really incredible claims about how strong it is, stronger than death, and um, I don't know. I feel like for some of you, because it's popular, and uh, it's always the people you least expect. But are any of you into like true crime stuff? And like, yeah, I saw some smiles. So like, you're doing your like normal life. You're doing the dishes, and you're like listening to the details of a gruesome murder, and you're like, this is how I relax. <laughs> um, I'm not saying that you're definitely a psychopath, but uh, I mean, you might be. Um, but no, like, I kind of get it where there, there is something darkly fascinating about the things that human beings are capable of doing to each other, right? Uh, and, and just trying to understand, like, how does someone get to that point? Uh, how, how could someone get to a place where they're actually capable of doing that? And in many of those cases, the answer for why or how someone's capable of doing that is actually in the two verses that we read right here. How powerful of a thing love is and and the jealousy that's mixed into love and, and when you have that and it's grown so strong and then you know, there's there's some kind of circumstance, some kind of triggering event, a betrayal or a perceived betrayal sometimes or uh, a threat of leaving. If you think you're going to lose this thing that's so precious to you, and, and none of this is like an, an excuse for the people who do it, but that's one of the things that'll set some people off to do those horrible things. We're not talking about true crime anymore, so just... Move on from that. Um, Look at what she says in here and what we can learn about love from this. Set me as a seal upon your heart, a seal upon your arm. Seals were uh, like stamps. You'd have a a little stamp that you would push into soft clay or like wax or something and it would leave your mark and it would be used to signify your, your possession of something. It would be a mark of your identity. And so for her to say, set me as a seal upon your heart, saying, I I want to have your heart. Like, I want your heart to be for me, not for anyone else. And not only do I want that on your heart, I want it on your arm, because I want all the other women to see it and to know you're spoken for. Kind of like we use wedding rings. I think that's what she's saying here. Um, For, here's the reason, for love is strong as death. Some of the strongest, most powerful people to ever live. I mean, we read about them in the Bible. Uh, One of the the first ones, a guy named Nimrod, and like Nimrod gets a bad rap because of the Bugs Bunny thing. He calls Elmer Fudd Nimrod, and everyone was like, what a funny name to call a nerd. Um, But it was actually trying to be ironic because Nimrod is the first mighty hunter who lived on the earth. And so uh, he he calls him Nimrod. So there's guys like Nimrod, there's guys like Samson, Samson and Delilah, remember the guy, the judge with the the superhuman strength and the super awesome hair? Uh, And so there's him, there's um, Goliath, Goliath giant of a man. Like all these incredibly powerful people, all of them died. (laughs) Like you could have all the power in the world, you could have all the wealth in the world, you could do all the health stuff in the world, you could do, like, take your probiotic and your vitamins and stretch and like get enough sleep and do all these things and be in like whatever essential oils I don't know what people do you can do all those things death is still going to get you no one's stronger than death and she says love is the same way in the same way that people don't have the power to overcome death like you you can't overcome it, that's how strong it is Right, jealousy, fierce as the grave. Like love, fiercely desires to be first and to not have competition, and that's a good thing. Like that's not a bad thing because no wife wants um, multiple women in her husband's heart who like she's competing with them to be first. just like no husband wants multiple men in uh, her his wife's heart that he's competing with them to be first. Like y- you want to you you want to know that you're the priority. You want to know that you're first is flashes or flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. I don't even know what that means, but it's awesome, right? It's possible it's referring to, like, lightning, the fire of God that comes down from heaven. That's what it's being compared to, but I do want to stop here for a minute and remember the warning that she gives us in verse 4. Don't awaken love too early, the flashes or the flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Uh, awakening love is a little bit like starting a fire. When you awaken love before it pleases, before the time that's appropriate, that's a little bit like lighting a match in a bone-dry forest. You can try to keep the fire contained, but you're taking a risk a spark could jump out and spread and spread and just burn everything that it touches. In, uh, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, Tim Keller writes about, about sex and its role in marriage and why it's supposed to be reserved for the marriage relationship, why that is the proper context for it. And he says this, he says, The Bible says don't unite with someone physically unless you are also willing to unite with the person emotionally, personally, socially, economically, and legally. Don't become physically naked and vulnerable to the other person without becoming vulnerable in every other way because you've given up your freedom and bound yourself in marriage. Then, once you've given yourself in marriage, sex is a way of maintaining and deepening that union as the years go by. We've mentioned before in the series, but but sex is more than just the physical act. There's more that's at play there. When, When God describes marriage, the two becoming one flesh, that's two lives being joined together to create something new. All those other ways of being joined together emotionally, personally, socially, economically, and legally, those are like the bricks that form the fireplace that make the fire safe to start. A fireplace is the perfect place for fire because it it makes it safe and you can enjoy the warmth of it without any fear. But if you're not willing to join together in all those other ways, if you're just going to join together physically and you you don't care to join together in all those other ways, that's dangerous. It's lighting the fire without the fireplace. There's nothing to keep it contained from spreading and growing and, and burning uh, to to a point that it it hurts the people who it, it touches. Other people who say like we don't need a piece of paper to know that we love each other, like that's such a dumb, you know, badly simplified version of like that's just not what it is. You know, it's not a piece, it's not just a piece of paper, it's a piece of paper that makes it vastly more complicated for you to leave. That ties you together in really strong ways. Like, without a legal commitment made to each other, which, at the same time, is a commitment that you're making before God and before your closest family and friends who are there as witnesses, and you're putting your name on the line and making these promises in that vow, without any of that, you could say you're as loving as as you want to say that you are. You could say you're the most loving person in the world. What you're doing is you're leaving a door open that you are free to walk through any time that you want. And there's nothing to keep you tied to this person. There's always the threat of leaving. When you take When you take something that is meant to be exclusive to marriage, when you take things living together, sleeping together, kids together, uh, and then it ends. In the same way that a fire will spread out and and start burning everything that it touches, it's going to burn the people who are involved. That's going to hurt you. It can hurt you in ways where... uh, It hurts your ability to trust, you know? And if you start a new relationship after that, uh, in the same ways that you've been hurt in your experience that you had previously, you're gonna take some of that and apply it to this new person who hasn't done anything yet. And they might be doing all the right things, things that should be earning your trust, but they're not able to because of what you've dealt with before. And it ends up hurting them. Right? It could hurt you in your self-worth. That's pretty common, right? It, it all ends, and then you start bringing all these questions down on yourself. Uh, and What's so wrong with me? Why aren't I good enough? Am I not worthy of being loved? Like, just assaulting yourself with all those questions. You could, just pra- you could lose friendships. Like, if you had shared the same friends together, and now you're not able to, you know, be together as friends anymore. You could lose friendships and that'll be painful. And even if like, you're able to end things and you don't feel anything about it at all, like you're not hurt, you feel fine, that's still not good because if you're able to be that closely physically connected with someone and you haven't formed any kind of emotional attachment to them, you've numbed yourself you've you've damaged your ability to connect emotionally, and that's just going to continue and get worse in, in your future relationships. You're not going to be able to create something that lasts. And there's, like, physical consequences as well, and I don't like preaching on this because I feel like I'm the teacher in Mean Girls. Like, the, you know, the teacher in Mean Girls is like, if you have sex, you will get chlamydia and die. And, like, Like, that's not the kind of fear-based approach that I would start with in talking about this. But there are, like, there are physical diseases, and some of them are permanent. And, like, if you just start early, and it's not within marriage, and it's kind of a casual approach to sex, then you shouldn't be super surprised if you end up with something. And, and some of them are really, like, horrible, too, because it's not just what it is. So, like, um, like, HPV leads to six different kinds of cancer. Like, that's a huge future impact because of the decision that you make today. And it's unsettling how, like, widespread HPV is. Um, marriage creates the best environment for love. Just, just like how fire is still a good thing. Like, forest fires are bad, but fire's still good. Like, we need fire. Like, you have a house, your furnace, there's a fire in your furnace that's heating your house. You cook on a stove, that's fire. Your oven, I mean, sometimes it's electricity, but that's basically fire. Your car has a little fire in the engine, unless you're rich and you have an electric car. Good for you. Um, Like, fire is still a really good thing, even though when it's taken out of an appropriate context, It's massively destructive. Love is still a really good thing. Even though when it's taken out of its proper context, it can be massively destructive. Right? To have someone, like you read the verses here, to have someone who loves you like that, who's committed to you like that, whose love for you is strong enough to overcome uh, the, the difficulties in life and all the flaws in you. I love that. Many floods cannot drown love. It's basically the same thing that you say when you make your vows, you say, for for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. Like there's not there's not a negative circumstance that's going to come into our lives that that will, will make me walk away from you. Right? My love for you is going to overcome any of those things. And it just takes a burden off you with this person. You, could, you, can, you can drop the act. You don't have to pretend. You can be yourself. You can let them know everything that's going on in you and just know this person is going to love me. This person's going to be with me. They're going to stay committed to me. We said it last week that love is primarily a decision. Um, it's a decision first. It's not a feeling first. Because even when... Uh, it's difficult, or they're being annoying, or there's something where you don't feel particularly loving in the moment. You could still make a decision to love them, you can still act in a loving way towards them. And when you make the decision first, and you're committed to the decision, you wake up every morning and you make the decision, it produces the feelings. These are the feelings it produces, this is the fruit that's being cultivated. This kind of love that, that can't be bought, right? When she says that love is not transactional. If it's transactional, it's not love. Uh, any, any marriage is built on a transaction. I'm not marrying you for you. I'm not marrying you because I want to love you. I'm marrying you because of what I can get if I marry you. Whether that is money or status or your beauty or like whatever it is. Like if that's the foundation that your marriage is built on, your vows are not truthful, because when it is in sickness or when it is uh, for poorer, and you're not getting the thing that you married them for, you don't have a reason to stay. Putting in, putting in the right work and cultivating your relationship, making the decision to love that that produces this. Powerful affection and this deep commitment, and it leads to increasingly more and more uh, peace and security and joy that you're meant to have in your marriage. Now, what does this have to do with Jesus? What does this teach us about our relationship with Jesus? I'm so glad that you asked, because honestly, I can't read any of this without seeing so much of Jesus in it. And I'm not going to spend super long on this point because uh, we, we talked about it last week, but sometimes repetition is helpful, provides emphasis uh, about enduring in faith. Paul wrote in Galatians, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we, will, if we do not give up. Don't grow weary, don't give up in doing the work and staying committed to following Jesus, even when it's hard to follow Jesus. It's hard work, but there is a harvest. There's a harvest. There's fruit that gets produced from that. Like, no farmers out here farming because they love to wake up at four in the morning and, like, plow. Like, they're doing it for the harvest, there's fruit from cultivating your relationship with Jesus, making the decision to love him and to follow him every single day. And I do want to be careful, and I'm going to come back to this later. I'm not saying that like, you work to get Jesus' love or you work to get salvation, but I am saying that within that relationship you have, the more work that you put in to, to your growth as a follower of Jesus, there is fruit that gets born from that that you get to enjoy. And it's not salvation. It's just extra. And the love that we have for Jesus and the forgiveness and the, and the salvation, we like that's all being born out of his love for us, which comes first. That Jesus first made the decision to love you, even when it wasn't easy. Because his decision to love you would send him to the cross, and he knew that. Jesus didn't go to the cross because he loved all the work he was doing on the cross. He loved the process. He dreaded it so much that he prayed that the Father would, would, would make another way. And ultimately, he submitted. He said, your will be done, not mine. But he didn't love the work of the cross. He loved the harvest that the cross was going to produce. That there would be forgiveness and salvation and eternal life for those who would put their faith in him. That's good news. But to understand how good that news really is, we should spend more time exploring the depths of Jesus' love for us, and that's exactly what the Song of Songs allows us to do, particularly here. Just like uh, in in the beginning of verse 8, she talks about her desire to be close with her husband, but the time wasn't right and they weren't able to. Jesus wants to be close with us. He wants to be close to his people, but there is something that prevents that closeness. And it's not a, a social barrier, but it's our sin barrier. It's, it's because in our sin, what we've done is we've rejected God. We've rejected his authority over us. We say, I don't wanna, I don't wanna have to listen to you. Some of the things that God says are hard. They're hard to do, they're hard to accept. Some of what he says is deeply unpopular and would make life much more difficult for us if we chose to stand with him in those things. And so we, we go, I'm not gonna listen to you. I'm gonna choose my own way. I'm gonna make my own choices. But in making that decision, in making that decision, We are choosing to not love God, to not love the God who created us and gave us life and created this world and gave us everything that we have. We're choosing to not love Him and in abandoning his way, which Jesus tells us the, the sum of all the commands is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself. In stepping away from what he says and how he tells us to live, we end up making unloving decisions toward one another. Right? Allowing ourselves to, to be selfish, to use people, to take advantage of people, to do things that are going to cause harm to people. In all this sin, all this sin towards God, all this sin towards one another, it's creating a debt. And the Bible says the, the wages of sin is death. And even though Jesus knew this, he knows all of this, he still came down to be with us and to do something about the barrier that separates us. He's born as a human being. He lives a perfect life. And he goes to the cross. Now, I think of what uh, verse six and seven said: Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death, jealousy fierce as the grave. Jesus so loves you. And because Jesus is God, Jesus is love, right? God is love, Jesus is love. He so loves you, his, his love is even stronger than death. Like, the wages of sin is death. Jesus dies on the cross, but death can't hold him. He overcomes death. He defeats death. He finishes our sin. He so loves you. He's jealous for you. Jealous fierces the grave. And I know that, like, I think the common association we have with jealousy is that it's a mark of immaturity or, like, insecurity like, if you're jealous in your relationship, that, um, and, and it could be that, like, misplaced insecurity if there's not legitimate reason. But if there is a legitimate reason, it's an appropriate way to feel. God's love has always been this way. He's always been jealous for us. All the way back in Exodus, in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, Says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath it, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. See, God doesn't want competition in your heart, and human beings are excellent at making idols. We just create things to worship and and not the same way in our culture where it would necessarily be like carving an image of something and then bowing down to worship that image and associating that with some kind of false god. But like the false gods for us are our sports teams and celebrities and our kids and our status, like all kinds of things that we can elevate in our hearts to worship and dedicate our lives to in place of God. To make more important, like we take good things and we turn them into God and then it's no longer good. It's no longer healthy. And he loves you too much to be okay with that. God loves you too much to let you have the giants or Taylor Swift or your kids grow in your hearts to become more important to him that your faith would take a backseat to those things. Because if your faith starts taking a back seat, even with those good things, whatever those things are that are good, those are gonna become corrupted and and misaligned with God's design and his will and it's gonna end up being harmful. That's what happens when you make an idol of your kids. He loves you too much to make any of those things take first place in your heart and your faith takes a back seat when Jesus went to the cross for you. And he has so much love for you that he made you a priority. He's jealous for you. Many floods cannot drown love. Nothing nothing has the power to extinguish the love that Jesus has for you, even your own sin. (laughs) On the cross, like the greatest challenge to Jesus' love is the cross and Jesus endured, he's faithful to the end, and he overcame death. He knows everything about you. There's nothing, there's nothing in you, there are nothing about your circumstances that could extinguish Jesus' love for you, that would make him regret his decision to go to the cross for you. If anyone offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Jesus' love for you is not transactional. He doesn't love you because of what he hopes to get from you. You don't have to earn it. You can't earn it. And if you try to earn it, you end up cheapening it. All you can do and all you have to do is to receive it. And maybe for some of you today, this is the step that you need to take. You need to understand how great Jesus' love for you is, that he, he decided to love you in spite of everything that it would cost him and everything that he would suffer. Understand that his love for you is so great that he overcame Death. He paid the debt that you owe so you could be forgiven, you could be free and have the hope of eternal life. Understand that he's jealous for you, that his love for you cannot be destroyed or extinguished. And maybe you would take the step today of saying, I don't want to stubbornly go my own way anymore. I see how Jesus loves me. I'm gonna put my faith in him, all my hope, all my trust that what he did for me and the power of his love is enough to forgive me, is enough to save me. And that you would follow him. It's the first step, it's the first step in, uh, in cultivating your relationship with Jesus more and more. You receive everything from him as a gift, and then you now have this garden that is your relationship with him that you put the work into, and you cultivate, and it grows an amazing harvest in your life. More peace, more joy, more love. What we're going to do next, as a church, is we're going to take communion, and so um, I'm going to finish up here, and while I'm praying, the band is going to come up. You just remain seated. Uh, the the people are going to come pass out the communion trays. Um, just hold it with you, and once everyone has it, I'll come back up, and the, they'll pause in the song, and I'll lead us through taking communion together. Uh, communion is something that Christians do. If you're not a Christian, you could just let the the, the elements pass by you. Um, if you are a Christian, or you even today want to become a Christian, we invite you to take it with us as this first step in rem- remembering um, in this physical way everything that Jesus has given for us. And so uh, let me pray for us.